Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, joined by NASCAR NBC analyst Kyle Petty. We're talking the night after the regular season finale at Daytona National Speedway. KP, I appreciate you joining me on a Sunday night after the Saturday night race at Daytona that was won by Chris Buescher. A lot of things obviously happened in this race. Chase Elliott misses the playoffs. Bubba Wallace makes the playoffs. We had a couple of big wrecks. I want to get to all of that, KP, but let's start with Chris Buescher, Brad Kozlowski, one-two finish for Roush Fenway Kozlowski Racing, and really well-earned because it really was dependent, I think, on Kozlowski giving Busher the critical pushes at all the right times in those final 10 laps, and then Busher making every right move. To me, it was as good an illustration of two teammates working together in the draft that I've seen at the Super Speedway race. It's as good an illustration of two teammates working together as we've seen since we saw David Reagan and Gilliland. David Gilliland, yeah. Yeah, because nobody wanted to run with those two guys, but they knew they had each other. And that's kind of what we saw at RFK. Nobody really wanted to push those two guys. Nobody wanted to be Brad's pusher or, or for Brad to push them. Nobody, they, but they teamed up again. And, and once again, I, I hate to say it this way, because RFK has not been in the in the conversation over the last few years. But you know, the Hendrick organization, nobody, nobody like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna hook up with these guys, man. They're gonna take us to the front, you know. Yeah. Uh, you just didn't go into Daytona thinking that. Uh, but these two guys believed in it. And I listen, I am blown away at the success of that team. And maybe I'm not as blown away by the success of that team as I am by the success of this team and the success of, of front row and the lack of success from Stuart Haas racing and the mediocre performances that we're seeing from the Penske organization, because mm-hmm. it's, it's like the momentum has shifted to the third string and the fourth string team or the third tier and the fourth tier team and not, not the first two players, uh, the first tier teams. So you got to give Brad credit. And, and because I think Brad's attitude, how Brad approaches the sport, the way he thinks about the sport, I think it's bled over into the whole organization. Uh, and I'm not saying that the changes that we're seeing today all started with Brad, because I don't believe that to be a fact either, because I think changes that were put in place maybe two and three years ago are now beginning to, we're beginning to see more of it. But Brad knows how to exploit those those opportunities. Uh, and I think that's what we saw uh, Saturday night, last night was RFK exploiting the opportunity to be the last two men standing, but to take advantage of the last two men standing and and power their way to the front. Brad Kozlowski's name is obviously the one that keeps coming up when we ask about what's different. He's the most obvious symbol of what's different since he became a co-owner with Jack Roush and that team last year. But we've heard Chris Buescher talk about it, Kyle. We've heard uh, Scott Graves, uh, Chris Buescher's crew chief, talk about it, that there really has been this culture change that... I think you'd expect, because we always know, going all the way back to his 2012 championship, that's always been Brad Keselowski's MO. That's his signature. He's this rebellious, anti-establishment, iconoclast. I look at the world differently. I'm going to do things differently. I'm not going to do it the same way as other people, because then I'm going to get the same results. And I I want to touch on what you said about, I mean, the Ford pecking order here. I mean, if you would have said to anybody before the season started, one Ford team is going to get all their drivers in the playoffs. It's not going to be Stuart Haas. It's not going to be Team Penske. It's going to be RFK. I wonder what the discussions are like right now inside the halls of Penske and especially Stuart Haas with only Harvick in the playoffs right now about looking at what RFK has done. It's just a two-car organization against teams that have clearly a lot more money and they're all running those guys right now. Yeah, listen, I, I'm, the, the conversation inside the, the halls of Penske and the halls of, of, of Stuart Haas Racing, they've got to be scratching their head and wondering what. The conversations that are going inside the halls of Dearborn, Michigan and, and the, the Blue Oval are, why are we spending this much money with those two teams when these two teams are getting it done? That's the conversation that the Penske organization and, <laughs> and the other one should be as, as concerned about as what's going on on the racetrack, because it looks like they're doing it with, with a third to half the money. And that's impressive. That is impressive. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. Sometimes... Sometimes we get into a situation and I think we, we believe that everything about this sport is engineering. Everything's engineering. It's engineering base, it's simulation, it's all this. It's still people. It's still people. It's still putting in the hours, putting in the work and, and, and doing things uh, and believing in each other. And, and that's the one thing when you talk about a, a 
culture shift or a mind shift at, at RFK. They believe in Brad. Brad believes in, in Chris Busher. He has believed in Chris Busher from the very beginning. And that goes a long way. And they believe in Michael McDowell over at Front Row. And, and all those guys believe in each other. And, and that's it. And, you know, I think when you get to, to some of these bigger teams, then it's, it's a little bit different culture. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more sterile. It's not as, as personable. You don't see the entire team at Pizza Hut like you do with, with Front Row. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. You, yeah. Just, you just don't see that. And, and that's old school. That's a little bit of old school right there. So, you know, but I, I do think there's a lot of head scratching going on inside the Ford camp, just period on how this is how this has happened and it's it would be different let me let me be clear it would be different if we were looking at this and saying okay this is where we're at and it's an anomaly that michael mcdowell wins in indy it's an anomaly that chris busher has won these races but it's not an anomaly it is the norm it is the norm in 2023 it's an anomaly that Joey Logano can put a car in the top five. It's an anomaly that, that Ryan Blaney can put a car in the top five. It's an anomaly that Stuart Haas Racing can put two cars in the top 15. I mean, that's where they've been this year. And, and you know, so it is just, it's fascinating to me the how the pair down, how that has just shifted, how that has just, that world has been turned upside down, unlike any other manufacturer's world I've seen in a long, long time. Here's what's interesting to me is that like last year, first year of the next gen, a complete sea change in the way that teams operate. They're not building their own cars anymore. They have to approach things differently. And we see 19 winners. And I think everybody thought, well, yeah, of course, there's going to be a bit of a level set type thing. Like the underdogs rise up. The big teams don't quite have their advantages yet. But I thought in year two, it would be sort of like the Empire Strikes Back. All the powerhouse teams would flex their muscle. And I think we saw that a little bit like the first half of the regular season, but I feel like the second half, it's been kind of a regression to the mean of where things were a year ago. Like, you know, Hendrick doesn't have half its cars in the playoffs and Stuart Haas has one and Penske's missing Cindric. And I heard this fascinating discussion this week, Kyle, on um, Parker Kligerman and Landon Castle, the podcast called Money Lap. Yes. Maybe what we might be missing here is that the dynamics have changed, like where teams don't have the autonomy they used to have that, and I'm glad you brought up front row. It might be that the more talented crew members who in the past would go work at a big team because they felt like, well, that's my only shot at running well, or, you know, that's, I have to go there because they're building their own chassis. They're automatically going to have an edge. I mean, maybe next gen is changing it a little bit where it's not just about like that the cars kind of are common, but like maybe it's, it's changing it in a way that if that the people can make more of a difference at the smaller teams, which I would have thought the, the other way. I would have thought like in year two of the next gen that again, like the big teams would rise up. Yeah. Seems like we're almost kind of seeing the opposite. Yeah. I, listen, I, I, I definitely listen. I thought by the, the halfway point of season one with the next gen car that we would see the big teams rise back to the top, but they didn't. And as we rolled into this year, I think what we saw the first part of the year was not the big teams that rose back to the top, but that the big teams had the finances and the capabilities of being more prepared as we rolled into the season. But as you roll into the season and you get into the flow, into the grind of the season, the smaller teams, and, and I hate to refer to RFK as a smaller team because they've been a powerhouse in this sport for a long, long time. But we all all know and believe that front row is. Listen, I, I will speak to this. this. This fascinates me, is that Legacy Motorsports announced early in the year that they were switching to Toyota from Chevy. So basically, they just said, okay, we're going to stand up and slit our throat because that's what they did because they get no support from Chevy. That's just, you're an outcast and you're getting nothing from Toyota because you're not in the, in, in the game yet. So here's a team with no, no real alliance and no real technical base and no real opportunity to do anything. And lo and behold, you know, half the time they put a car in the top five or 10. Eric Jones gets that car somehow in the top five or 10. So that plays in to that way of thinking, to, to Parker's, to, to that concept that talented people can take this piece of equipment, talented drivers can take this piece of equipment, and with all the simulation, with all the stuff, and with everything they have, have a basic idea and a basic concept, and be able to build enough adjustment into this car that they can make it work. That speaks volumes to the people 
at front row. That speaks volumes to the people at, at Legacy. That speaks volumes to the people on these smaller teams. And, and I think when you look at that, at a time when we thought the sport, a lot of us thought the sport was going to AI in all honesty, you, you know what I mean? It still is the intelligence and the hard work and the camaraderie and the belief in each other. It's still a people sport in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's a, I, I, for me, that's a, that's a plus. That's a plus. And I hope it stays this way moving forward. Yeah, huge plus because I think NASCAR is kind of built on well, your living proof of it, like the whole family connection yes. thing. It's about like having a family atmosphere, the type of teams people want to work for. And that was, I'm glad you brought the manufacturer point because that was the jumping off point for Parker and Landon's conversation was you've got 2311 racing. They haven't even announced which manufacturer they're going to run for next year. It's probably going to be Toyota, but they can discuss like, oh yeah, we might switch three months out or even Legacy Motor Club changed the Toyota next year and they made that announcement, you know, a little bit more than six months out. That never would have happened before. I mean, Stuart Haas switched to Ford. They made that announcement more than a year out. And now, like under Next Gen, it used to be like if you switch manufacturers, you got to switch how you're building chassis and engine. Like you'd make all these adjustments and you don't really have to do that anymore. No. And like I think it's it's kind of leveled the landscape in a, in a way that maybe people weren't thinking of. Yeah. You got to switch decals. That's what you have to yeah. switch. And, and basically, that's it. You know, and ba basically, when you start walking around these cars and looking at them, if they were all just flat black, you, you would be hard pressed to tell the Fords from the Chevys from from the Toyotas. And you can don't get me wrong. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. But basically, you're just you're switching front and rear fascias and and some decals. And that's about it. So, yeah. And the, the fascinating part, too, is to that is like you say, is they're willing to make that that announcement and go down that road months, if not years out and, and go ahead and do it because they believe they can still be competitive with what they have. They, they, yeah. they don't believe they're, they're cutting their throats. So that is, that is, it's a, it's just a different, it's a different way of thinking about the sport. It's a different approach to the sport, but it's fascinating to watch. It, it is fascinating to watch these teams and, and how, how, when you go to the racetrack, you honestly, have to watch everything that goes on all weekend long to see who's going to run good because it's not like it used to be. It's not at the one end of the garage area and that's the only end that runs good. Really rolling into Daytona, there were more cars at Daytona that could have won that race than I think I've ever been to Daytona in my life and seen could have won a race. Yeah. And that I think environment certainly benefits a guy like Brad K. Yeah. Again, like looks for those hidden advantages, looks for the margins. Uh, and tries to find those market inefficiencies, as someone who would use buzzwords like him would say. Yeah. What do you think about him as a team owner, Kyle? Because so this is Chris Buescher's third win. He had back-to-back -back wins earlier at Michigan and Richmond. Brad Keselowski still is winless since becoming yeah. a team owner. I mean, we had you all, all the way back to, to 2021 to get the last victory for Keselowski. But yet, you know, Michigan obviously had to be tough on him because that's the race he wants to win more than any other, maybe even than Daytona. Yeah. So his teammate wins that race. Richmond, that one kind of got away from him, even though he was in the mix of it. But it almost seemed like last night, Keselowski was as happy as I've seen him as a winning car owner. And, you know, maybe it had something to do with the fact that he was so instrumental. I mean, Busher said it. Uh, that, that's as much Brad's win as, as ours right there. That was the right help, uh, aggressive, sticking with us too. But what do you see from Brad in terms of being a team owner and growing into this role? Was, was he kind of meant for this role? And does he seem to be relishing it more and more? Yeah, listen. Brad is an incredible race car driver. I'm not going to say he's the greatest race car driver that ever lived, but he is a champion. He's a champion in the sport. He has gone toe to toe, nose to nose with some of the toughest, toughest drivers and toughest teams that this sport has had to throw at, throw at him since he walked in and, and got in James Finch's car and won at Talladega. And somehow he's always been able to hold his own as a driver. You know, he's always just reached a little deeper, just dug a little deeper. And I think that is a, honestly, I think that is a tribute to his parents, to his grandfather, to his father and his uncle, Ron, um, to the environment that he was raised in, to the way he was raised in racing and how he saw others with more, but how he saw that they could do more with less. And they did, they won races. His dad and his uncle won races with less, with less lesser equipment, and lesser finance. And I, I think that's instilled something in him that, that a lot of people don't have, that, that a lot of people don't have. And it's a desire. And he's 
he's always been able to take that, that something, whatever it is, that intangible, and behind the wheel make something happen. But I think that from the time he was probably, when we see pictures of him with his dad and with his uncle and all those guys with the truck and all that stuff, he was meant to be an owner. And, and I, I will say that because he sees a bigger picture. He sees a, a broader landscape. Um, and he sees the nuances in that landscape. He sees where he can take advantage of this or take advantage of that. I, I, I will say this in speaking from personal experience. Brad is not an owner just, I'm going to put my name on this company. Brad is an owner where I'm going to roll my sleeves up. I'm going to get in here. Let's talk about this. So I think, and this is Kyle, I think that takes away a little bit from his driving because hmm. he can't be everything. It was tough to go back to Petty Enterprises and drive a race car and run the show. And I went back for a reason. I went back for Adam. Brad went back to build something. And, and that was, once he made that decision, I'm leaving Penske and I'm going to go build a future. Then part of Brad is building for the future. And yes, he can still win races. There is no doubt in my mind he can't still win races. Um, we've seen it multiple times this year that he can win races. But when you go head to head with a guy that you're paying and all he's got to do is sit in that car and drive that car, you're just a tick behind. You're just a tick. So it's got to be a special day for you. I, I hate to say you're not 100%, but you're just not 100%. And I know you think you are because I thought I was. And, and my 100% would get me 32nd on a, on a good day. You're, you're just not because you're thinking about so many other things. And, and I think Brad is, is transitioning into that. But I think Brad, Brad's going to be that player. He's going to be that guy that, that is like the Wood Brothers, like my dad, like, like Rick and those guys, guys that come in and, and, and buy a team or become part of a team or start their own team and are still going to be here in 30 or 40 years in some way, shape or form. And, and have their fingerprint uh, still all over, their fingerprint still all over the sport. So apologies to those who are listening to the podcast, didn't realize this was going to be like the Brad Kozlowski Mutual no. Admiration Society discussion. But I have one more point to make about Kozlowski no. that I want to get your take on, because I mean, I talk about this guy's intelligence and there was a moment during this race under red where Brad Kozlowski's car was on fire. Yes. And Kozlowski thought that the fire might have been because that something had sparked on the insulation in the door panels. And you could feel the smoke in the cockpit. Deb Williams Auto Week. Brad, exactly what happened when you were going in circles back there? And I believe your car was on yeah. fire. You're the first. I, I did not think it would take four or five questions to get to that one. <laughs> uh, well, Deb, I was sitting there under red flag and it just started smoking really big out of the left front uh, rocker panel. And I knew what that meant. I mean, it was about to catch fire. Uh, and I was going to get knocked out of the race. Uh, and the only way to stop that was to get air moving through the car. Of course, being under red flag, I had to improvise. And there was a uh, pad at the bottom of the racetrack. And uh, I knew I couldn't drive around the racetrack without getting in serious trouble. But I figured I could get away with driving on that pad. So I just ran on that pad until the, the flames and the smoke disappeared and uh, called it good. And NASCAR decided retroactively that that was okay, which... I think it was a little bit controversial because, of course, there was a famous Daytona 500 in 2002 and Sterling Marlin was leading the race, got out under a red flag, pulled on the fender and got sent to the back. And that ruined his chances. Yeah. NASCAR said that what Brad did in this instance was legal because they felt like it's driver safety. It was, right. He was taking steps to protect himself. But what did you make of that, Kyle, uh, seeing that, seeing Brad spin under red to, to put this fire out? And, you know, if that doesn't happen, Kozlowski and Busher have no way of winning this race because Kozlowski's car might have burned down. Yeah, true. Listen, I think that's heads up by, by Brad. And I agree 100%. Listen, I was racing with Sterling. He got out to pull the fender off to not only make sure it was clear, for a little bit of a competitive advantage because you move those front fenders on those cars. That was a huge deal with Daytona during, during that period. And it was a red flag. So let's go back to that. This was straight up safety, straight up, man. We, and how many times have we seen fires in rocker panels with, with this car, uh, Kevin Harvick last year, I mean, just burnt to the ground, the car all but did. Uh, so there were issues there. There's been issues. So you've got, that's, that's in his mind. So I, I think, you know, that that's heads up. I, and I applaud NASCAR for the no call, for saying, no harm, no foul. He's out there riding around in circles looking for the, 
to pick up Wenda at the local McDonald's, if that's what he's doing, whatever he's doing, he's just being, it's okay. You know what I mean? And so I, I do give him that. But I think when you look at that, without that, if he had sat there and, and second-guessed it and thought about it and, and all this stuff, listen, we might have had, <laughs> we could have had the same in-car audio from Brad as his car burnt down that we had from Joey Logano at Pocono. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Because that's what happens because they they can't get there fast enough. And that's not, that is not a knock on, on the, the rescue team on the trucks or on the wreckers or stuff. They just can't get there fast enough. The damage is done by the time they're there. So you have, sometimes you have to take it in your own hands and listen, Brad, that was heads up by Brad. I'm not sure. I'm not sure a lot of other drivers would have thought that or done that under that, that scenario. That was huge presence of mind. And like you said, it happened during a big wreck. So NASCAR had all these vehicles attending to the mess yes. there. And, you know, when you're dispatching vehicles there, you don't have the workers to get to his car in time to put a fire out. So I, I think you're exactly right on that analysis. I, I am going to say one thing. I, one other thing. I like the way NASCAR, I, I like something they did last night. When they had the crash and they had all those cars scattered from the middle of turns three and four all the way to the entrance to, to, to pit road. They sat there with the wreckers behind them until they went back green and went back under caution. And then they allowed them all to push at the same time. I like that. I like that because no team had an advantage over another team by already being able to assess their car, to be able to run to the truck and get what they need and all that. It kept the playing field for all those cars that were equal going into turn three. They were equal by the time they got to pit road. And I know there were a lot of people just screaming on the radio. And I know Jeff and, and those guys were discussing it in the booth, but I, I I thought that was a great, I'd never seen NASCAR do that. And I thought that was a good call. That's a good point. I totally missed that. But yeah, same for everybody. I hear that all the time from all the drivers, all the teams, yeah. crew chiefs, and that's certainly an example of that. So Busher wins the race, but a couple of other big stories. One, of course, is Chase Elliott misses the playoffs. Uh, he was in it though, KP. I mean, he had his chances the final run of this race. He lamented the final yellow. Yeah, I really liked where we were before the caution. Um, and honestly, after after the restart there, we had the bottom lane that we wanted. I knew the six was gonna go at the 17, and I thought the four was gonna take the bottom, and they did, and, and, and we really had all the help that we could ask for behind. I just, uh, I couldn't stay locked on to Kevin like I needed to, to, to surge the bottom lane forward and, and Brad and, and Christopher there just had a good enough hold on that top lane and they could kind of control each of them. But uh, yeah, it's a bummer, you know, for sure. Hate, uh, you know, hate, hate the seasons worked out like it has, but the good news is a car got in uh, in, in the owner's point. So that, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, and credit to Alan and everybody for continuing to work and, and scratch and claw while I was out to, keep our team alive and, and to give ourselves a chance. So that, that's a big deal. After the final restart, when Kozlowski and Bush were kind of making their magic happen, it seemed like, I don't know if you thought this, but not just for Chase, but for Harvick, for Almirola, it seemed like everybody else was like one beat off yeah. of where they should have been in terms of like making the right move at the right time. And Chase being maybe the most vivid example of that. Yeah. So here, and, and that's, that's a, a great point because I felt, I felt in those final laps, that and from the time that they pushed busher to the front from the time brad and busher hooked up in my mind they took control of the race and from that moment on everyone else reacted to them no one made a move no one made a a counter no one did anything they reacted to what what chris and and what uh brad did i'm, I'm gonna go back in time it's reminiscent of when Everybody used to race against Earnhardt and think that he could see the air. Um, yeah. And so everybody reacted to wherever Earnhardt went. You know what I mean? Nobody tried to, to do anything different. You just reacted. So it made it look like he was here and everybody else was here. And last night, that's what it looked like. They were here and everybody else was reacting. I, I, I think Chase, they put themselves in a, in a good position at the end of the race. And, you know, it's, it is a little... And, and I say this, and, and this is going to be, I apologize, I'm going to have a drink of tea before I say it. <laughs> okay. It is not the end of the world that Chase Elliott doesn't make the playoffs. And I'm about fed up to my brown eye eyeballs about, well, what's Chase going to do this week? Well, what's Chase going to do this week? You know what? 
There's 35 other guys out there that drive race cars trying to do exactly the same thing. We talk about him because he's the most popular driver. So since he's the cool kid in school and the most popular driver, then we have to elevate him to a different place. But in the end, he's just another race car driver. There's just another one of Rick's teams. Rick has four incredible drivers, four incredible teams. This, this team fell short this year because of personal injury, because of suspension, because of a lot of different reasons. It just didn't happen for him. There were years it just didn't happen for Dale Earnhardt Sr. There were years it didn't happen for Richard Petty or Jeff Gordon or Jimmy Johnson. You just have those years. That's part of the yeah. sport. And, and we try to make too big a deal out of it in the media. I think we do. We try to look for all the nuances and why did this happen? Why? It's just not your year, dude. Just not your year. You, you got to ride it out and, and you've got you've to adjust. And I think we put so much pressure on Chase. And I'm defending Chase when I say this. We put so much pressure on him that's undeserved. Undeserved. He's a race car driver. He's just doing the best freaking job he can do, man. He gets in that car and he drives it to the best of his ability. And he does the best he can. And I think we saw, in my mind, we saw the pressure begin to get to him really in the last two or three weeks. His qualifying effort at Watkins Glen, miserable. The miscommunication or misdecision or whatever that happened at Watkins Glen, unacceptable. To go to, to, to Daytona and eliminate half the field and still have to run the way they run, I, I don't expect that from, from their cars. And, and they were just off. These guys were just a little bit off this year. So chalk it up to, to, to that and move on down the road um, because Chase is a champion. Chase is a great race car driver. And Chase is going to continue to move the Hendrick organization forward. This is a, a blip on a radar screen. This is a, a small thing. But I think we tried to build it up and build it up and build it up until it was between him and Bubba. I don't know how either one of them got out of bed in the morning. Uh, after watching the media and listening to us talk, because it was crippling, crippling pressure, crippling anxiety, and and we were projecting all of our hopes and dreams on them. Glad you brought up Bubba because that's where I was going next. Chase Elliott misses, Bubba Wallace makes it. So clearly the pressure weighed on Bubba, and yeah. we know that you know psychologically this has been something he's kind of wrestled with. I've had you on the podcast before and talk about it. Burton's talked about it here on the NASCAR NBC podcast. So Bubba. Kyle declined to talk to NBC both before qualifying on Friday, pre-race on Saturday. Uh, I thought Brad Doherty said something really interested in our pre-race show. We did ask Bubba Wallace for a pre-race interview. He declined that request. But, Brad, you've talked to him yeah. a few times today. What's his mindset coming into the biggest race of his career? Yeah, you know, Bubba is is anxious about tonight as well. We would expect that. And, and it's been interesting to watch you know, this young man over this past year, you know, there was a lot of expectations coming in. We thought they maybe win a couple of races. They didn't do that. But over the last seven, eight races, they've gone consistently up. And I think one of the things that has to be recognized is the role that Booty Barker has played in all of that. Mm. You know, you, you have an owner in Michael Jordan, who's probably one of the most viscerally engaged competitors to ever walk the face of the earth. So they keep him away from, from Bubba from the standpoint of, of trying to encourage him because Bubba, as we know, is, is he, he struggles a little bit with the psychological side of being competitive. The weekend and the week out and the minutia. He hyper-focuses on some of that stuff. So Booty has stepped in, and he's become that voice of reason. And he's helped Bubba get to this point to where tonight, as I told Bubba today, all you got to do is be Bubba Wallace tonight, and that will be good enough. Afterward, Bubba Wallace makes it. Big celebration with Michael Jordan. Uh, that was the most stressed, but also the most locked in that I've ever been. Bubba says that this is on his Mount Rushmore of racing achievements next to his two cup wins. Encapsulate what you saw the entire weekend from Bubba. And is that pressure, I know we've talked about it before, but how does he get past that? Because, I mean, I don't want to be critical of him, but at the same time, I mean, Chase Elliott did interviews before the race and after the race. And Bubba did an interview after the race, but I just feel like, like at some point, you got to accept that, hey, man, like this is part of the deal. You got to talk to the media, even if you're feeling all that stress. Listen, for for professional athletes to refuse interviews is unacceptable in any game. Unacceptable. Unacceptable to your fans. Unacceptable to the sport. It's just it's just not. Ty Gibbs did the same thing. He, di he didn't want to do an interview. And, and I don't know how these guys think that's acceptable in any world, because that's what you're here for. That's what you're here for. That's what they pay you the money for. 
You know what I mean? That's what, and, that, and that's that stupid saying, that's why you make the big bucks, dude. You got to handle it, put it on your shoulders and carry it. If, if mentally we are, he is that fragile, then maybe this is not the game for him. You know, honestly. And, and, and it, it was interesting to talk to Brad about some of this stuff. It's like, Brad, did you ever get nervous before a game? No, I had a routine. I went through the same routine all the time. I went out, I did my job. That's what you do. There are games that are bigger than other games. I, we all know that. We've all played in big games. We've all gone into to races and had a shot at a championship. Hard to believe, me included. You know what I mean? I've, I've been there. And, and yeah, you think about it, but you can't, that, that can't be the, the focus. And I, I said it before, before the race. All Bubba has to do is do what he can do because yeah. he's a good race car driver and he's a solid race car driver. And on the speedways, those are his moments. He was 32 points up. Come and get it from me. Bubba should have had the attitude going in there. A strong driver has the attitude. Come and take it, Badoo. You you're going to have to take it from me. It's mine. Take that 16th spot. And that first leg, I thought he drove it that way. Come and get it. I'm going to run up here in the front. I'm going to get it done. The second segment... As he fell to the back, I thought, man, we're seeing some cracks in the armor here. Little did I know he's a lot smarter than me because when the wreck come, he was in the right place. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? And then he did it. And and at that moment, now he's in, except for a new winner. Except for a new winner. Golly, man, they flirted with a new winner uh, there, there towards the end, too. So, I mean, he still wasn't safe. But I think Bubba gets stronger. And, posi- and being in, in these positions will make him stronger mentally. Once you once you get that experience and, and once you've been there, I, I think you learn and he gets stronger and it's it's trial by fire. If we come back in three years and he's in this situation again and he's still doing the same thing, then you have to question something. But I, I think at this point in time, you know, I, I give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, but, but listen, not doing interviews is never acceptable. I, I don't care. It, you've got to take the good with the bad in this sport. When you win, if you want us to come talk to you, expect to come talk to us also when you lose. And when things are good, if you want us to talk to you, you got to talk to us when things are bad. And I just think that's a that's a slap in the face in a lot of ways to to fans and the media and everybody, because you're not above that. Right. And yeah, and I didn't know that about Ty Gibbs, but agreed, like same for his situation. And yes. yeah, I mean, toward the end of stage two, when Bubba was going to get zero points and it looked like Ty was going to win that stage. It did look for a little bit there like Bubba could have lost it maybe two ways. And he got saved a little bit by the fact that Gibbs got in that crash at the end of stage two, unfortunately resulted in a huge right front impact uh, in the turn four wall for Ryan Blaney. I'm not the only one who noticed this, Kyle, but it was certainly reminiscent, unfortunately, of the 2001 Daytona 500 where Earnhardt crashed there. The difference, of course, being now in 2023, there was a safer barrier there and that safer barrier gave a lot. What did you make of that, the safety advancements and that safer barrier being there for Ryan Blaney? Yeah, listen, man, I think that wreck was, I I would hate to see that film laid over the the films of, of Dale's and of Neil Bonnet's and some of that because it was, that's tire tracks. They, they're in exactly the same place. The safer barrier continues to show itself to be, if not the biggest advancement in motorsports, it's tied with number one or number two right there. It is at, it is phenomenal. If you get if you guys get a chance to watch it in slow motion, watch how far the safer barrier goes in on impact, but watch the ripple of the safer barrier as it comes at you off of turn four and as the wall goes away from you, just as he hits it, just watch that ripple effect. It sends that energy 50, 100 yards in both directions. And that's what the safer barrier does. It moves the energy, it dissipates the energy and it sends it in another direction and not to the driver's body. If you go back and watch that, I don't think I ever saw the flame, uh, a flame come out of, of Ryan's tailpipe, which means he never got out of the gas. That car turned so fast and so quick and so violent and went straight into the wall that he never had a shot, an opportunity to take his foot off the gas or put his foot on the brake or to react to it. He just never had a shot. That was it in the conversation. So to watch him catch his breath on that in-car camera and nod that he's okay and start talking on the radio, that's something that we didn't see 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, and that is, that is, it's huge. And, to NASCAR, to everybody that developed that, 
to all forms of motorsports. If you race at a place that don't doesn't have that, these safer barriers are so critical. But that was that was a hit. If we didn't have what happened later, we would still be talking about that today. Uh, and I don't think we need to to take that off that top that A list because that's something that needs to be analyzed again. I'm sure the car will be analyzed. Uh, but the car seemed to hold up well. Um, everybody around uh, the cockpit itself seemed to hold up. Everything did what it was supposed to do. And I think, again, that's back to NASCAR. And, and I will sing their praises when, they, when I think they need to be sung. And I will go the other way when I think it needs to go the other way. But, you know, they've done a lot of, of they've taken bars out. They've softened things in the chassis from the rear impacts and the front impacts. And I think that's an example of, being that willingness for NASCAR to look, to change, to be able to adjust and to change these cars, even in mid-season. Um, I think that we saw that in action yesterday uh, with Ryan Blaney. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, that's not the wreck everybody's going to be talking about coming out. I say unfortunately. Unfortunately, meaning like that we're not talking about yes. that. And, and like you said, the advancements of the safer barrier. Obviously, you never want to talk about wrecks, period. But the wreck everybody's going to remember from this race was Ryan Priest bringing out the final caution of the race. Huge barrel roll, Kyle. Uh, estimates that he probably flipped about 10 times. We had a really good discussion, I thought, after Ryan Newman's wreck in the 2020 Daytona 500 on this podcast, in which you talked about how it shouldn't ever be lost, that this is a really dangerous endeavor, that auto racing is always going to be inherently dangerous, and that that needs to be respected, that needs to be recognized, and that maybe sometimes, you know, God forbid we ever have another fatality in NASCAR, but it's been 22 years since there's been one. And I think sometimes that does get lost in all of the discussion about safety and safer barriers and the new car that like it can always happen, unfortunately. I know that you took a little bit of guff on social media about this. I, I guess like my question to you about this is when you hear from those experts on social media, I, I have people become too inured to maybe racing being too safe. I mean, drivers seem to have a pact and understanding that every time they strap in a car, they might not be unbuckling themselves to get out. Like, should fans somehow, I mean, should we, I, don't, I don't know if we should ask fans to make the same pact with themselves when they're watching races, but is that part of the bargain of being a racing fan? I don't know. That That's a great question. That's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I think, I think the... We just get complacent in attitudes and a lot of things and a lot of things. What got me going yesterday was I got instantly, I get all these, all these tweets and I'm, I'm looking at stuff and I'm hearing comments and I'm listening to things and people are like, we are stunned by this. We cannot believe this happened. We are stunned. Well, I don't know what world you live in. You strap a guy in a car and ask him to go run 200 miles an hour in a pack of 30 or 40 cars. This is going to happen. You're going to have these things. I think every driver that sits in one of these cars, Corey LaJoy said it when the, the Newman accident and when the, uh, when some of those accidents happen. We we understand that. It's, it's, it's a calculated risk. We're on this side of it or we're on this side of it. And, and that's the way it is. And sometimes in the past, we walk away. And sometimes in the past, people that we love and people that we cared about didn't walk away. So we understand that. And I think every driver that straps in one of these things understands that. I think fans forget that. Fans forget that. I, I said it before, I grew up at a time in the sport with my dad where guys went to the racetrack and never come home. And it was common. And, and when I say common, it didn't happen every other week. It didn't happen, but it wasn't 23 years between fatalities. I will tell you that. And when you're seven or eight years old and you're watching your dad, you begin to have a huge respect for what racing is and what it can do and what it can be. So I, I look at it and I'm like, why are you stunned? Just because we have safer barriers, just because we have uh, the next gen car, just because we have the Hans collar, just because we have all this stuff, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. It lessens it and it brings that down and it brings the odds, it puts the odds more in the favor of the driver or moves them to the side of the driver but the weakest link in the car is the driver. Understand that. The weakest link in a car that runs 200 miles an hour is the human body. And that's how simple it is. And the weakest link a lot of times in the human body is the brainstem. And that's why we have so many concussions and why we've had so many things happen. That's just facts. I can't, I can't change that. But the fact that as a fan, 
we don't believe that or we don't see that or we don't expect that, that 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 bothers me a little bit because I, I, I'm like, you've got to understand what these guys put on the line every single week. And I think we just take it for granted that they're just going to climb out. They're going to walk away. They're going to tip of the hat, wave to the crowd. Uh, and Monday morning, the, the sun's going to come up and the world's going to go on. It's not always been that way. And it's not always going to be that way. It'll it'll happen at some point in time. It's just it's in the it's in the cards. It's in the odds. All we can do as an organization at NASCAR, all we can do as a driver, as a sport, is try to lessen those chances and do as much as we can. It's that stupid saying: safety never takes a holiday, man. You got to be on top of it 24/7, 365. And that's what NASCAR has done. And I think we saw it with the Ryan Priest car. I was I was if I go to the Ryan Priest accident for me. It brought back John Anderson in, in 81 and Rusty Wallace in 83 and Rusty Wallace in 93. Um, my dad at Daytona. I mean, these cars. But the, the thing that fascinated me about Ryan's car was it seemed to pick up speed as it got up in the air. And if I remember, and, and I, I don't remember clearly, I know, back to 91 or, or excuse me, 81 or 83. But when you look at things, a lot of times as they do things, they begin to slow down. As, as the accident happens, it kind of drags itself down. This, this accident, as he came out of the pack, it seemed to accelerate. It was like a hurricane over, over cold water. It was picking up speed. You know, it needed to be, it needed warm water to slow itself down and it just didn't slow itself down. And, and the last two hits were hard hits when he hit on his, his top. Up until that time, they were just rolls. It was violent looking. And listen, I, I don't want to be in that car. Don't don't get me wrong, but it was it was a, probably more violent looking than it actually was uh, in a lot of ways. But the hits were hard. The hits were hard, and it was good to see him get out of the car. But you know, NASCAR will take obviously they're going to take that car. They're going to look at the parts that failed. They're going to look at how the parts failed, whether it was you know the suspension as it broke away, as things happened. They're going to look at why things didn't break away, why things did break away. It will be the same meticulous process and investigation that the FFA goes through in a plane crash to determine why something happens. And so don't expect the answers to all this stuff by Friday. It's not going to happen because they'll go through it and analyze everything. And that's where NASCAR is today. Where That's not where they were 46 years ago. That's not where they were 23 years ago. You know, and, and that's not where they were in 2001 at Daytona. It's not where they were in 2000 at, at New Hampshire with Adam. That's just not where they were. But that's where they are now. And I think every driver should take comfort in that. But it was it was a violent accident and, and it was horrendous to watch. And as a competitor to to watch that um, and to see that car sitting there when these guys had to keep riding by it, lap after lap after lap and see the ambulance still sitting there and see that Ryan hadn't gotten out of the car yet. That gives you a bad feeling in the pit of your stomach as a driver because you're st still strapped in one of these things and you got to go at it again because they're going to drop the green flag at some point in time. So I think everybody was was there was that moment when it's which way is this going to go? And when he climbs out and they're able to continue, it changed the tenor of the race for sure. And it changed the the attitudes and, and some of the comments that were made post race. But and it should have it should have because it's a sobering moment for a garage area. Yeah, that's definitely unsettling. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. You're right. The field is circling and going by that car and not seeing him get out is. And you're also right. I mean, NASCAR will CSI this thing. No time or expense will be spared in trying to figure it out. When Austin Dillon had his crash in July 2015 at Daytona, went up in the fence. A year later, NASCAR came out and said, hey, here's a dozen or maybe it was like two dozen improvements we've made, like on footbox intrusion, like all that stuff. It led to improvement in the safety of these cars, but there'll be some lead time uh, before that happens. But in the meantime, just going back to what you were saying about safety, it doesn't take a holiday. It's a moving target. You're never going to hit it. And unfortunately, it's a hard conversation to have, especially in this day and age when NASCAR is continually trying to expand its fan base and appeal to, to new fans. And you have social media now. I just I don't know how you have that conversation to, to your point. I've never I've been very fortunate to have covered NASCAR for a quarter century. I've never been on at track during a fatality. I've never had to cover a fatality on site. But I, I rue the day 
that it could happen because it absolutely will happen again, unfortunately. Like that's the nature of racing. You can make it as safe as you want, but at some point the odds catch up to you. That's why I say it's a calculated risk. It's, it's a calculated risk. You know the odds are against you um, at some point in time, or they, they, they will sway, the needle will move. Um, and that's why, like you said, it is a moving target. And every time that there is a safety advancement as a safer barriers, as a Hans collar, uh, as, as the next gen car, as the way the, the footbox is, is assembled, as the helmet development, man, Bell, Arai, all these guys constantly, constantly looking for better ways, better, better, better interiors in these helmets, better, better seats, better head foam. I mean, how many times we went through this last year with the head foam and the, and the headrest and stuff. So much is constantly moving. And every time that, you know, that, that tragedy takes a step forward, we try to take a step forward and stay one step ahead of it. And, and that's kind of the way that the, the process is made. You know, it's, it's a sad statement, but that's what motorsports are. And, you know, from the very, very beginning uh, of time, the first time that anybody strapped herself in one of these things and said, let's go do this. It's not always champagne and, and checkered flags. That's not, that's not the way it always is. And, and you just have to know that, you know, you just have to know that. And, you know, there's a flaw in race car drivers, DNAs, uh, and your DNA that, that allows you to put that in a box somewhere and put it in your head. And, and that's why we say it all the time. You know, young guys, there, there's a, there's a crazy saying in racing. The older guys really used to say, it. you don't hear it as much anymore, but the older guys really used to say it is, yeah, that kid can drive, but wait until he hits hard one time. And then let's see how he drives because it changes something. There's just something that it changes that makes you think about it a little bit more. Um, and I've, I saw, I've seen it in drivers. I've seen it in myself, but I've seen it in other drivers who took a blow and took a hit and it took them months, if not years to get past that, to get back to where they were. And it's not that they couldn't get back up on the horse. They just didn't ride the horse as hard um, as, as the way it was. And so it's, it's a, it's just different. It's just a different mentality and stuff. But again, the best part about this sport right now is the manufacturers who, who have safety in mind, the drivers uh, with their, with their council, um, the RTA with their council, NASCAR and everything that they've done with the R and D center has been a godsend for this sport uh, for the last 23 years. Uh, it has been a godsend since the early 2000s because there is your clearinghouse for safety. There is your place that you can come. It's a one-stop shop, man. And we, we didn't have that. We didn't have that in the last century. And it was just, and I'm not sure we would have had it if it hadn't have been for, you know, Dell Earnhardt and Adam and Tony Roper and all, all those guys, Kenny Irwin. It, it, I don't believe we would be where we are today. And the ball was moved because of that. And again, because of, you mentioned Austin Dillon, the ball moved again because of Austin Dillon. The ball will move again because of Ryan Priest and, and because of this accident. Because remember, we've only run this car for a year and what, seven or eight months. This is a brand new car in a brand new era in a sport that is poised to grow over the next 10 or 15 years to maybe heights that, that I don't believe we've ever seen in this sport. Going to Chicago, going to LA, going places like that. The sport's in a great place. Um, so I believe that we're in a place where NASCAR will take this and there will be, there will be changes and be positive changes. Great insight. I appreciate all of it. Before we get out of here, just real quick, obviously playoff start Southern 500 Darlington Raceway this coming Sunday. Your man, William Byron is the top seed tied with Martin Truex Jr. Who's, they both have 36 playoff points. I certainly like both of them uh, to get to the championship for it. After that, it's a little bit murky. Hamlin's got 25 points. Chris Buescher now 21 playoff points, ranked fourth. What do you make of uh, playoffs, KP, and, and what we're going to see here uh, going forward? You know, I, I don't know, Nate. I, I, I swear, I would like to think, okay, I got at least three of the four. I can tell you at least three of them, you know what I mean? But but I'm hard-pressed to tell you at least one of the four uh, in, in a lot of ways because of the way the season has, has gone. You mentioned Chris Buescher. He's won, what, two or three, three or four, three, three out of the last five or six races, something like that. Um, who saw that in February? Who saw that? You know what I mean? And that's the nature of, of this sport in general. And I, I always go back, and I know you do too, Tony Stewart, who said, I don't deserve to be in the playoffs. 
and then went five for 10, you know what I mean? And, and wins a championship. It's a streak sport. It's a streak sport where a guy can get so incredibly hot that, that you just can't stop him. Uh, can William Byron get hot? I think, I think the, the, the Watkins Glen win was a huge statement for William Byron. We see Denny Hamlin. I, I have all the faith in the world. He's a Hall of Famer. He's, he's a great race car driver. But once again, his Achilles heel, Pitt Road, raises his head yesterday uh, at Daytona. Can he have a clean pit road? If he can have clean pit road, a clean, clean, no penalties, no bad pit stops and stuff like that, Denny Hamlin may lap the field and win this championship <laughs> by a landslide. But he's got he's to get some of that. Kyle Larson. Can Kyle Larson get hot? You know, we've not seen Kyle Larson hot for a year or two years. I guess since we went to this car almost, you know. So, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see as we go into it. I think there are guys, honestly, and that that are in the playoffs. I want Kevin Harvick to make it to the, to the Final Four so bad. So freaking bad. I can't even tell you. I have become a huge Kevin Harvick fan. But... SHR and Kevin Harvick has not shown me anything that lets me know that they're going to make it out of the first round. And that's a sad statement. And, and I, I hate to say that, but I'm just, that's, that's my feeling. Now he'll probably go all the way to, to Phoenix. And yes, I'll be cheering for him when he gets there. But it is, I, I, I just think this is up in the air. I, I don't think, no, once again, even though that William has, has five wins, the only driver that I've really seen take this year and grab it and say, come and get it from me, is Martin Truex. He he has been the guy that I believe has been the most consistent and has been there. So I think you kind of got to go through Martin Truex. But other than that, I've not seen anybody who's who's that strong. All right, there you have it. Playoff preview from Kyle Petty, who uh, joined us here on the NASCAR on NBC podcast. Always appreciate your insight. Always appreciate all your time. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you, man. Our thanks again to Kyle Petty for joining us on the NASCAR on NBC podcast. Thanks to Motorsports Manager Emily Conboy for setting up the episode. You can watch the video episode of the podcast on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel and also find more NASCAR America Motormouths content and highlights from across the racing spectrum on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. The NASCAR on NBC podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts and it's also now on Amazon Music as part of the NBC Sports Collection on Amazon Music. You can find all your favorite NBC Sports shows on Amazon Music. Just head to Amazon.com slash NBC Sports. The NASCAR Cup and Xfinity Series will be at Darlington Raceway this weekend. You can head to NBCSports.com slash NASCAR for all the information and schedules on how and when to watch the Southern 500. That's at NBCSports.com slash NASCAR. If you have any NASCAR NBC podcast feedback, you can send to me at Nate Ryan. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast.